while you're, uh, or while the guys are walking down the aisle, you can, you can flip to Exodus 13. And let me just give you a real quick synopsis of where we've been, and then I'll uh, explain to you what's going to happen this morning, because it's not what I expected when I started uh, this chapter. Um, let's get, say it the quickest, easiest way we can, is at the end of Genesis, the people of Israel... And, and I should clarify, just in case there's confusion, sometimes I refer to them as the Hebrews, sometimes the Israelites, sometimes people of Israel. It's all the same, same group of people. Um, they have gone into Egypt um, because God had been mightily working through Joseph to save all the nations uh, around there through this time of famine. And, and this promise that was given to Abraham that through your nation, all nations of the earth will be blessed is, is beginning to take shape. Uh, and so they all move there to kind of uh, deal with this famine time. And there's a prophecy in Genesis that we've looked at many times talking about after 400 years that the people will come out and they'll go back to the promised land. But a lot isn't explained of what's going to happen in those 400 years. And, and the new Pharaoh kind of takes over generations later. We're not sure exactly where in the timeline. But a new Pharaoh takes over who fears the Hebrew people and he enslaves them. And he begins to force them into these slave labor, making bricks and building things and uh, building cities and, and whatnot. And, and the people cry out to the Lord for deliverance. They recognize that they need saving. And so God, through a very unique series of events, uh, uses Moses, who, who was a Hebrew baby but was raised in the palace as an Egyptian and then had to flee and, and then grew up as a, or, and then continued his life kind of in the tribe of Midian. And, and so he didn't really seem to have a place and yet God says, no, I know who you are and for what I've called you. And so he calls Moses to be uh, the voice of the people and to bring his, his people, the, the, the Hebrew nation, out of slavery. And so over the last number of weeks, we've kind of gone through the 10 plagues of, of Israel and, and showing that God is sovereign over everything. And that even though his plans don't look like we expect or in the story that they expect, that he is still in control and he is still working. And, and so finally, a couple weeks ago, we finished the 10th plague where the, where the angel of death came over and, and killed all the firstborn of animals and people in the nation of Egypt. Unless, as the Hebrews did, they put, they dipped... Um, something that I forget, thank you, uh, on the, in the blood and on the doorposts, and they put this blood of the lamb, which represented, ultimately, we talked about this lots, but ultimately represents the one true lamb that would be slain for us, and that his blood would cover our sins. And so they, the, the angel passed over those houses, and, and then we looked very briefly at this idea of Passover and, and what that means and the meal that they're to have and, and actually that their whole calendar would be oriented in this new way of understanding that God alone brought salvation. And so that brings us to chapter 13. And, and originally when I was kind of mapping out what I was going to do is I thought I would basically just sum up the first 16 verses and, and keep moving because it's going to take us a while at this rate. We started in January and we're only here. Um, but I realized as I was studying through these verses, there's way too much symbolism and way too much importance to just sum it up and, and to just move on. So, so we're going to read it in two sections. We're going to read verses 1 to 16 and talk about it. And then we're going to look at 17 uh, to 22. So let's read these first verses and Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, 
Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord, sorry, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb, sorry, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord has brought you up out of Egypt. Now, there's just, there's so much symbolism in there and so much tradition that, that it was deeply, that is deeply meaningful as long as we understand it. And I think sometimes when we read, especially some of this older texts, when we read them and we see some of these seemingly odd things like why, why redeem this donkey and if you're not going to redeem it, why break its neck? None of that makes any sense and it sounds almost barbaric. Well, if we can step back and if we can immerse ourselves in that culture and that understanding of what is happening, all of a sudden all these things are so valuable, so meaningful and point us ultimately towards Jesus. And so I didn't want to skip this because I thought, man, we got we to gotta deal with this. So let's talk about the consecration of the firstborn. Now this image was already talked about back in Exodus 4.22, where the Lord calls Israel his firstborn. And that theme kind of starts to play out a little bit. And and ultimately, of course, we talked about two weeks ago that the firstborn of every Egyptian died. And so there's kind of this sense that God has now instituted this consecration of the firstborn as a reminder that there is a separation, there is a distinction between those who follow God and those who don't. There's a reminder of essentially what it cost to be free. And of course, we just celebrated this this last week. As there was a cost for our sins to be forgiven, Jesus had to go to the cross. And that he had to die and rise again 
so that our sins would be paid for and that death would be conquered. And so this idea is a foreshadowing, a pointing to that of sorts that that they didn't fully understand, but that we can. And so when we read these texts, it should actually open up even more of our understanding because we have the whole picture and the people there never did. They just knew they were being obedient to something that God called them to, but maybe didn't understand fully what that meant. Douglas Stewart points this out in his commentary. He says, It is necessary and beneficial that human beings recognize that God is superior to them. And the requirement of a ritual that reminded every Israelite of this by insisting on receiving their firstborn from them helped create the spiritual attitude of submission so important for salvation, personal discipline, and blessing. There's something in that sentence that is so crucial for our time right now. And it's the reality that God is superior to us. God is the creator. And in a world where we find ourselves now, is we just, we value self-expression and we value, you know, being true to yourself and, and living in, in your truth. People often say, and I would say that all of those things have brought great hurt upon us because we're not recognizing the place that we are under the authority of God. God gets to determine what's true and what's right. And if we take that away and we start thinking that we are the most superior being and that I should get to do whatever I want so that because I, I have certain, certain value, well, the only value that I have is in the fact that God created me in the first place. And we kind of have seen this in culture and in history and in in many different countries, is the further we get from the understanding of God's holiness and our depravity, then we start to wash away and go, well, those sins, those things that I deal with, those struggles, they're not that big a deal. It's no problem. God will just forgive that. And then we get to the place where we take God out of the equation and it no longer matters. But we, just as, as this group of people coming out of slavery, need this reminder over and over, is that I need some kind of tangible reality in my daily life to go, God is first. And I exist as a gracious creation of him, and I want to give back to him. And I'm going to submit my life to God. That's the first starting place that we need to have. And so if we have any kind of theological confusion or argument or why would God do this or why would God do that, it's the first place we need to get to is going, I I, I want to understand this, but God, help me understand it in your wisdom, not my own. Not what I think is valuable, but what you think is valuable. And so this tradition continued that it was this regular reminder and you can kind of put yourself in the shoes here of them is, is those people, they would have a baby and that baby would literally be reminded that this belongs to the Lord. In other words, it's not by my might or power that I've created life, but it's because of God's goodness that he has allowed that to happen. And I want to bless this child in the sense of I want to give him to God because actually, and and this goes against everything that we think in our minds, is I'm not a very good parent, (laughs) but God is. He has the wisdom that we need, not not me. And so the people would give back to God uh, this child, and and you see this all the way until the New Testament. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, and speaking of Jesus, it says this, 
When the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Then in brackets it says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So Mary and Joseph understood this. There's examples in the Old Testament. Who, who might you be able to think of that was dedicated back to the Lord? There's, there's a whole bunch, right? There's lots of examples where they went, this child, he's, he is holy to the Lord. And see, as I already mentioned, their whole calendar was to be marked by the beginning of the year was you were rescued from slavery. Now it's this context of, there's, simply put, is there's so many regular traditions put in place so that people would not forget it is God who has rescued you. It is God who has brought you to the land of Canaan. It is God who has established his will in your life. Don't forget that. Now the unfortunate irony in the whole thing is we're about to enter a whole, tight, a whole chunk of text where they forget real quick everything that God has done. God, why? Why have you brought us out? We're going to look at this next week as they're encamped on the Red Sea. Is, their exact words are this. Uh, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? Didn't you just call out to be rescued from slavery people? Well, no, no, no. I, I just, we, just, we just wanted less work. Right? Like we, They just forget so quickly and and it's easy to be critical of that, but here's a question for us is, have you forgotten the last time God was faithful to you? Have you forgotten the last prayer that God answered in a very tangible way? Have you just moved on from it thinking it was no big deal? Whether thousands of years ago the Hebrew people in the wilderness or whether us right here right now, we have the same problem as we forget. We forget God's faithfulness. We forget his goodness. And we let the circumstances around us determine those things and we get frustrated and we call out to God going, why would you do this, God? How could you do this? What are you doing? Rather than going to him in, in humility and calling out, God, I need help every day. Then in verses kind of three to verse 10 here, you see this reminder again of the unleavened uh, bread and we looked at this already in chapter 12 a little bit, but I just want to sum this up with something that Kenneth Harris writes, and this is really good. He says this, The Lord's statutes were to be so normative and governing for life in Israel that they would be like marks on your hands and between your eyes. Again, everything was to point back to. And, and later on, and we might talk about this, we might skip over this, I'm not sure, but um, when the law comes into places to the various foods that are given. There's even uh, a certain sense in which the way in which they would speak those animals. Um, I learned this in a seminary class. It was very interesting. I'm not going to try and make the noises because A, I'm sick, and B, I don't speak Hebrew. But you know some of those Hebrew words that kind of sound like you're bringing up some phlegm, as it were. There's no nice way to say that. Um, there's, there's a sense in that of going, so like chew the cud, animals that bring up. And there's a reminder in there that God says that as I brought you up out of Egypt, you are not to do this or you are to do this. And there's this daily reminder in everything from what they ate to how they washed their hands to all these traditional things that were pointing back to you have been rescued from slavery. 
as we're going to read in a moment, is for us, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. All of these things are to point back. And so we might think, man, the leavened bread, like, or unleavened bread, excuse me, this, this, this seems kind of strange, and what are these traditions for? Well, this is probably true of all of us who have had children, uh, is our children push back on the family traditions that we have. And they think, well, that's silly. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do this. This is unnecessary, whatever it might be. And my argument is most of the time, it's because they don't understand from where that tradition came from. If it's a normative, as Kenneth Harris points out, is if it's a normative part of our life, it's not just, um, we go to church because we go to church on Sundays. So kids, pack up your stuff, let's go. Well, of course they're going to push back on that. And you did too, and I probably did too, and we threw our little fits, and we cried on the way, and wanted to play with our toys or whatever it is. But did we as parents enter into the conversation, like it says in the texture, when your son asks you, why do you do these things? Do we remind them, here's what God did, is here's his faithfulness. Do we remind our children the reason that we go to church, we gather together because we need God's grace. We gather together because we need community and we need Christian family to hold us accountable, to lift us up, to encourage us, to help us. We go because there's people there maybe that need encouragement from us or need us to step in and help in a certain way. We go because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for us and commanded us to gather together regularly. Do we have those conversations regularly? Are they normative parts of our life? Or do we just say it's tradition, we just do it? I grew up in a, in a small Mennonite community that tradition was a really, really big thing. But the more that I understood and the more that I learned about the reasons why we did the things that we did, even if they weren't important to me, there was a sense of, okay, I can honor this. And I can, I can respect those in the church that hold to certain things that, that maybe I don't think are as important, but I can still honor them in that. So these things are all meant to be very, very normative. But then there's this kind of confusing verse about, or, or section, I guess, about... Um, redeeming back and and not redeeming and and all of a sudden donkeys are mentioned in the sense along with humans and and why is that there and so i just want to spend just a few uh, moments dealing with this um the firstborn of those animals that are meant to be eaten were to be sacrificed to the lord the firstborn of those animals that were meant for, for regular work within the community were meant to be redeemed back, as were the people. And so when we kind of think about that, again, I'm going to read from, from Stuart here because this is, this is helpful. He says, the criterion was this. The firstborn males of normally edible animals, such as goats, kids, lambs, oxen, whatever was considered a proper food animal, were given to God as offerings Whereas the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of male animals used for work, not for eating, such as the donkey, were redeemed by a payment of a substitute. So here's his conclusion. Thus the practical meaning of give over to the Lord in verse 12 is to bring to the tabernacle as a sacrifice. And notice the tabernacle isn't even there yet. God's planning and preparing his people for the sacrificial system. And he already started with, with, the, with the Passover. And now he's moving more and more and more into this so that when by the time we come along and we read this and we go, oh, 
when, when somebody is going to offer a firstborn animal to the Lord, they're literally reminding them that this thing that would feed me and my family, I'm giving to you because it's not the food that feeds me, but it's actually you that feed me. It's you that I need, not the goat. But then there's those, well, God doesn't want humans sacrificed, so there's a sense of redemption bought back. Well, why? Well, because we're going to be reminded that we have been brought back from the grave through the blood and the death of Jesus on the cross. And so what seems like, what is this, what is this redemption right? What is this that doesn't even make any sense to me? It all has such meaningful symbolism for the generations that are to come. And even so, when he says the donkey is the example, so this is an animal that was uh, about work. It was, you were to redeem, but you were to buy back, because it's not as though God just says, give me everything you have, and I'm not going to give you anything. As God says, when you're obedient to me, I'm going to bless you for it. And so, redeem it back. But then he gives this warning, but if you're not going to redeem it back, then you have to break its neck. And that seems like, well, why would you do that? Well, God's planning... uh, for his people to understand this way is you can't go to your herd, look at it, and go, uh, okay, I'm going to not, not sacrifice a lamb in place of this because I want that lamb, and I'm just going to let the donkey just be, be part of my herd that, that works for me. And so then I'm being disobedient, and I'm not offering a sacrifice to God that is required, which again points forward to the one sacrifice that would pay for all sin. And so he says, if you're not going to redeem it, then you, you have to break its neck because it, can't, it doesn't belong to you. It's no longer for you. You're misusing the good gifts that God has given you for yourself instead of for God and ultimately for the community. Stuart again says, if life is to be restored, it must be bought back by payment. And as I referenced in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about us being bought at a price. And he's very clearly in Corinthians tapping back into this imagery, into this language, into his Jewish roots to remind himself that all life, if it's going to actually have life, has come with a cost. And so for you and I, do we have things in our daily life, in our calendar, in, our, in our, the way that we live that regularly remind us that my life is not my own. That I belong to Christ. That I live for him. Because if we don't think about those things regularly, we're going to forget. Maybe not forget the whole concept, but we're going to go through days or weeks or maybe even longer where we just ignore all kind of spiritual things and we just exist. We just go to work and we just come home and we just make food and we just do all these normal things and we forget that, as Paul said, is whatever you do, do for the glory of God. We need to be reminded daily of this. And so as he finishes Writing this in verse 14, when in time to come your sons ask you, what does this mean? There's an implication that all of these traditions are to be a little bit strange. So that your children go, man, this doesn't make sense. Why would we do that? That's not logical. We need that animal. Why would you do that? Oh, son, it's because we trust the Lord to provide for us. Not my own hands. 
It's because we were rescued from slavery when we cried out to God. And and even though it didn't go according to what we expected, as God proved himself to be faithful and sovereign over everything, and if he was faithful and sovereign over everything back then, then certainly he is now too. And see, this is a truth we've been talking about over and over again, is we've got to stop letting our circumstances determine our outlook on life. God is going to bring us through some very difficult journeys. But he has purpose in all of those. God's going to bless us in unique and wonderful ways, but it's not just because he's trying to bless us, it's because he loves us and is trying to lavish things upon us. But he's also going to do those hard things because he knows, maybe let's say it this way, is God's way more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Because happiness is very temporal. And it disappears real quick. But your holiness lasts. Now maybe you've had this opportunity where you've sat down with a, an older person than you who has, who has seen a lifetime worth of amazing things, and they just have this quiet trust and faith no matter what that God is in control. No matter what happens to them. And I remember back in my early years as a pastor, there was a fellow who got cancer in our church. And I don't, I don't know how he processed all of that internally, but all I know is he said God has purpose in this. And no matter how sick he got, no matter what situation happened in his life, he went, God is using this for his good. Now here's what I know, is he didn't get cancer and then learn that truth. He practiced that truth regularly. So that when crisis happened, that he would be reminded that even though this has happened, God is still faithful. So we need these regular reminders. All of these observances, all of these traditions are to point to God's faithfulness, God's love, God's mercy, and ultimately God's salvation. One last quote from Stuart. He says this, Our identity is that of God's chosen people who were rescued from slavery in Egypt, rescued from death of the firstborn by faith in Yahweh. And so we keep showing this faith by, dis- by dedicating all firstborn children and all firstborn male livestock to God, but we buy back the children and the livestock that are in- inappropriate for God's offering because God is generous enough to allow us to do that. He still gets an offering, but it is a substitute offering for what he wants us to keep. When we do this, we are doing something that reminds us of his powerful deliverance from Egypt. And so maybe that's not the exact story that we tell our children, but it's not going to be a whole lot different, is it? Paul talks about being a slave to sin. And then when we have Christ, we no longer are slaves to sin. And while we might not have been slaves to the Egyptians, we were slaves to our own vices, to our own evil thoughts, to our own sin nature. But God in his goodness and in his graciousness has rescued us. And so we remind our children of that. We speak the truth of that. And I've said this too many times, but I, I just it's so important to, to grasp and realize is it's not the church's job or it's not the youth pastor's job or it's not your Sunday school teacher's job to teach about Jesus. It's your job as parents. 
Because if they don't see this in the home, if they don't see the realities being lived out and that it makes a difference in your life, then when a third person is telling them these truths that they go, well, my mom and dad say that, but they don't even talk to us about it, there's confusion. Maybe there's even a sense where they look at that and go, well, we say that in theory, but do we even believe it in practice? This doesn't mean that you as parents need to be perfect. In fact, far from it is when you make mistakes, when you do things that are wrong, to go and to confess to your children, this was wrong and I shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And then we remind them of the gospel every time we show them who Jesus is and we show them why we live the way that we, that, that we do. And that's not a guarantee to say that that means all your children are just going to immediately accept Jesus but it will give them a far greater chance of realizing the importance that Jesus makes in your life if you actually live that out. Verse 17 to 22 says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up to the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph, of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. As the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. As they move, as they begin to travel towards this promised land, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns on the way, but we see here <clears throat> something that's so important is, that, again, God's sovereignty. God could have led them through one direction that would have been shorter and more efficient, and most of the time in Scripture, we aren't necessarily given the exact reason that God does something. But here we are. It's really interesting, right? He says, uh, I'm going to lead them this way, not that way, because if they go this way, they're going to run. They're going to see war, and they're going to fear. Now, remember, there are a group of uh, recently uh, delivered slaves. They don't have a military power. They don't know how to fight. They don't know how to defend themselves. And through this journey that God's going to take them on to get to Canaan, he's going to prepare them for those things. But they're not yet prepared, and he knows that. And so in his grace and in his mercy, he takes them the long way around. Now, maybe that's a sentence that you need to hear. Is maybe in God's grace and his mercy, he's taking you the long way around. Maybe you're looking at it and going, man, God, it would be so much easier if, like, that seems like the right thing, and, and, and yet it's not happening. Why aren't you allowing me to have this thing or, or that career or that person in my life or whatever it might be? And God says, because I know what's best for you. And I'm going to take you along a path that's not really the straightest one here. It has a little more twists and turns to it, but it's ultimately for your good. I think, again, this comes with perspective, and the older we get, the easier it is to look back on situations and go, God, thank you that I didn't get what I wanted there. Or that the thing that I prayed for so fervently that I thought I needed, thank you for not giving me that. 
that only comes with maturity and wisdom as we learn to trust God more and more. God's plan, he says, is to take them along the Red Sea. And we're going to see next week, we're going to look at this very, very famous miracle uh, of the parting of the Red Sea. And so we'll talk more, at that, more about that at length then. But I just want to make this clarification. Because there's actually quite a bit of debate about this. And I, and I want to help you realize that these debates are not bad and they're not new. And there's really good reasons to stand firm in what we believe. So the debate is over this certain Hebrew word. I'm not sure how to pronounce it because I can't, but uh, sap or yam sap. And literally that word can be translated as sea of reeds and not the Red Sea. And so scholars are kind of divided here whether it was actually the the mouth of the Red Sea in the Gulf of Suez, uh, which that's what it's called today, uh, which is kind of the more traditional view, or whether it was a separate body of water. And if you go down this rabbit trail, there's lots to, of interest to learn. And, and you're more than welcome to do that. I actually encourage you to do that. But for this morning's purposes, I just want to say this. Sometimes there's sections of scripture like this where scholars are not in agreement. And they have some differing opinions of these things. But it actually doesn't really matter. Because we look at things going, man, it has to be 100% historically accurate or it's not true. When that's a very modern way to think of scripture. Is often scripture is written in, in ways for us to see and understand the theological truths present. Not necessarily all the details lining up exactly right. And so you'll see this all through scripture. You'll see exaggerations. You'll see numbers used in very, very kind of round numbers where you're like, really? That, that? It was exactly to the day of this. It's like, well, no, that wasn't the point. That doesn't mean the writer is lying to you. It means they're trying to get you to see something. And this is true of all of us in our communication probably every day with people. Is we say things that are not meant to be 100% exactly correct, but are meant to get a point across. And and in this case, the scripture, the theological point. The theological point, regardless of whether it was the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, is that God is about to rescue them again that God is about to miraculously make a way through the water for them. Now that being said, there's lots of good evidence that the Red Sea is what is in, 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 in mind of Moses here and, and specifically in this text. And so I have no concern when that challenge gets presented to me to go, no, this is the Red Sea and, and here's why I think that. And the reason that I say this is because if that's the first time, if, if you're having a conversation with somebody and they go, well, you know, it wasn't even the Red Sea. And you go, well, what do you mean? You've never heard of that. You might get rattled real quick and go, can I trust the Bible now? Is this true? And you might go down this, this sense of doubt or confusion. Or if you've read up on these things and seen them and you can go, yeah, some scholars do think that, but actually the majority still hold that it is the Red Sea and here's why. And then you can go further, and if they go, well, no, it's wrong. Well, you can go, okay, well, then what's the theological implication? If it is the Sea of Reeds and it's a translation error, what's the implication? Actually, nothing. Because God's still about to do what he's going to do. And so it doesn't need to cause us any angst or concern or, or any worry. All we need to do is really study hard and to read thoroughly and see that 
there, there are sometimes there's rooms to agree to disagree, and we still end up in the same theological point. And that's all I want to say about that. Verse 19, very interesting thing here is they talk about the bones of Joseph. Now remember, um, back in, in Genesis 50, 24, um, Genesis, uh, sorry, Joseph says this to his family. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he knew what was happening. Now he didn't know how long it was going to be, and I very much don't think he had any idea slavery and all those things were coming. But he knew from the prophecy in Genesis to Abram that God was going to have them go into Egypt and that for, well, he probably did know the time because it says in that text 400 years. And so he knew that they was going to be brought back to the land of Canaan. Why is this so important? It's important because Joseph recognized that Egypt was not their home. And he never thought it was. Even though he was put second in command over all of the Egyptians and he lived in that kind of luxury and he brought his family to save them from the famine is he knew that that was never God's resting place for them. That they would go back to where God had promised them and he wanted to be part of that even if only in bone form. And so there's a belief, there's a faith there. But also I think it's really interesting um, Do you know anything about your family 400 years ago? I mean, maybe you do, and then if you do, it's very good. But I think most of us, we've forgotten all those things. They just haven't been passed down or haven't been taught to us. But here was a truth where Joseph made this vow saying, please, or or asked for a vow to be made that his bones would be taken, and the people remember There's a sense of honoring their past, of remembering from where they came from. I think there's tremendous value in that. This is why I think it's so important that we study Old Testament, we learn about who God is and his plan of salvation, and so that when people come at us with like, well, the Old Testament is a different God than the New Testament, we can go, well, not really. Let me explain to you why. Because we know it. We've studied it. We understand it. And in the same way, metaphorically, we can say, I'm going to take the bones of Joseph up out. We're going to take the truths of Scripture from hundreds and thousands of years ago and hold them just as tightly. The text ends here with a very important statement. The Lord went before the people. The Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is leading. God is orchestrating the steps. God is literally showing them where to go. And we're going to see next week that they panic because they go, this doesn't make any sense, God. Why have you led us here? We're all just going to die now. Well, for us to remind ourselves that this same truth is there, we might not have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire unless we read Acts chapter 2. And we realize that when the Holy Spirit comes on us, that a pillar of fire rests over each individual believer in that moment. And the symbolism of that is no longer do you have to go to the temple to encounter God's Spirit, but God's Spirit now dwells within you. And so that means that you, in the same way, have a pillar of cloud and fire that is leading and directing and guiding you, and he's going to take you to some places where you go, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us here? Because we're not going to understand what God's doing. But are we going to learn our lesson from 
the exodus from God's faithfulness over and over where he's going to provide them food where there is none, give them water to drink from rocks, where he's going to do miracle after miracle after miracle to show them I am God and I am in control and I am leading you somewhere. Would you please trust me? Are we going to learn that same thing? Sometimes we think we're so different than the people back then, but we're not. We have the same problems, the same hurts, the same confusions, the same issues. Here's the good news is we have the same God that they have. And he can lead and he can guide us. And that doesn't mean that our circumstances are all going to go away. He might rescue from your circumstance today. But that doesn't mean that the next circumstance is all roses and wonderful things in front of you. It might be very difficult. There might be another challenge waiting ahead of this one. But again, it's because God wants you to be holy. God's concern is that we trust him, that we obey him, and that we say, God, you are sovereign. You have been sovereign since the beginning of scripture. You are sovereign today. Would you give me the courage? Would you give me the perseverance to walk through what you have before me today? That's what we're called to do. And back to the beginning of that chapter is when you read these things and when you read ones that let the goat or the donkey break in its neck and none of this seems to make sense, is then I really challenge you, read deeper. Read more broadly. Because there's so much that has so much value to point us ultimately to Jesus. And the more that we see in the Old Testament God's plan of salvation, the more clearly we see that Jesus, Jesus is the answer. The whole of the Old Testament points to him. And if we miss that, then we are misunderstanding and misrepresenting God. Let's pray. God, as we read these verses, as we see the symbolism, as we think about Passover and the substituted lamb with the blood painted on the doorposts, as we consider this idea of consecrating our firstborn, is maybe some of those traditions have been lost and they don't make sense to us now. But help us to study them so that we do see the meaning behind them so that in the same way today that we as parents can offer our children saying, God, you have called me to steward this child and to parent them. But only for a time because ultimately they belong to you, not me. Help us to see all these things pointing towards Jesus, to pointing towards the beauty of the gospel message. Help us to not just come to confusing parts in Scripture and just move on from them and, and not dig deeply, but help us to ask the questions that need to be asked. As we move forward into kind of the Red Sea narrative and the people forgetting your goodness and your faithfulness, would we learn from this and would we trust you no matter our circumstance? Would we recognize that you, through your Holy Spirit, are guiding and leading and directing us? And would we learn to submit to you and to follow your ways, even if that's the long way around? God, thank you that you love us enough to do what's best for us. And so as we go from here, may we consider these things. As we go to our next part of the day, as we 
come across the next circumstances of life that are going to be around us is may we seek to find you in the midst of all of that. And would we seek to be a blessing to those that we get to interact with. May they see the hope and the assurance that we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We were bought with a price. May we remember and live that out. God, we love you. Go with us today now. Amen. Just a reminder.